All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 4. And I want to draw your attention this morning to verse 2. But before I read that, prayer is an interesting thing. I didn't do a study of it, but just in the four years that I've been in ministry, how many books in the last 40 years do you think have been written on the subject of prayer? Oh, probably, you know. And I'm sure that it has filled the coffers of those who write them quite well. And seemingly over a simple subject. Now, I no doubt there are some interesting things. I hope that we can point some of those out today. Prayer is important, extremely important, and it's extremely powerful. But as men always do, we like to complicate it. We want to make it into something that it wasn't. You know, the actual definition, of course, of, of prayer is simply worship, is what it means. And, you know, uh, supplication now, of course, is requesting things from God. But when a person tells you that they pray, I want you to understand this. When a person, and now I'm talking believer or non-believers. I've had plenty of non-believers tell me that they pray all the time. When you say that you pray to God, you are making an assumption that you have a relationship with Him. Okay? Let me explain that to you. There's a man sitting in the White House today. I won't mention his name because I don't want to date my sermon. But he sits in the White House, right? And we call him what? Mr. President. Regardless of who says it, we call him President. But what do his kids call him? That's right. Guess who's on speed dial on his phone? His kids. His kids are on speed dial. You're not on speed dial. I challenge you. Call the White House and see if you can talk to him. I can tell you what's going to happen. Nothing. You're not going to talk to him. Unless you have what? An intimate relationship where you can bypass all of the red tape and all of the protocol and the things that, you know, are required to meet a man of such stature. So in order to talk to him on a daily basis, I'm sure his kids walk in and say, Hey, Dad, how many times I've heard musicians who are famous talk about, you know, how they, when they're out on tour, you know, people treat them like they're, you know, wow. And then when they go home, the wife says, take out the trash. So when you say that you pray, you are assuming that you have a relationship with the Father. And I hope you do. I hope you do. And that is our prayer, of course, that you have a, a close, intimate relationship. But the issue of prayer within Christendom is kind of odd. I remember back when I was a, a pastor in Calvary Chapel in Zanesville, there was a book that came out during that time called The Prayer of Jabez. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Sold all kinds of copies. Not in our bookstore, it didn't, but it sold plenty of copies. I wouldn't allow it in my store. You know, the thing is, is... Everybody wants to turn it into a systematic thing. You know, here's what you pray. Here's exactly what you say. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today is prayer. And Paul, of course, here writing to the church there in Colossae, there in chapter 4, in verse 2, I want to draw your attention to, which will be our single text for this morning. He says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 
first off, what a privilege we have as the children of God to bring all of our cares and the needs to Jesus Christ. What a, what a pleasure. What a, what a privilege that is. There's an old hymn that we sing every now and then here, and what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, oh, what a privilege to carry everything to Him in prayer. I love that hymn. But when you look at the issue of prayer through the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, when you consider what it says about prayer, there does seem to be a difference between the old and the new. The way that the old guys, you know, the old prophets, the old saints, how they approached God, and how we see God approached now in the New Covenant era. There does seem to be a difference. The children of Israel, you maybe you remember the story, they had demanded a king. You remember that? We want a king because, you know, they wanted to be just like the world. Well, you remember they wanted a king uh, because Samuel's kids, his two sons, were not like Samuel. Uh, they were judges, but they were crooked as the dog's hind legs is so to speak. And they did it for filthy lucre's sake, and the people got tired of it. And their remedy for a temporal problem was to create a permanent problem uh, by having a king. And so they went to Samuel and, and, and told Samuel, we want a king, just like everybody else. We want you to go to God, and this is what we want. Samuel warned them, of course, that their desire... Uh, was not of God. This, this isn't the Lord. You don't want this. And he rebuked them and warned them against, you know, about God's wrath and anger about that. So when you read the story, Samuel had taken the request of the people uh, as a personal rejection. I understand that when you read it. He, he took it personal. You know, that he was, he was being dissed by the people is the way he saw it. But the Lord, when he went to him, told Samuel, Samuel, don't worry about it. It's not you that they have rejected. It's me that they have rejected. So in the process of time, you know, Saul had been chosen, uh, of course, to be the king, the first king of Israel. God had even sent thunder and rain, as you remember the story, to kind of, uh, you know, rebuke the people for what they had chosen to do. And it did motivate the people. Uh, it motivated them to cry out to Samuel to pray for them that they wouldn't die. And so Samuel exhorted them and, and, and told them not to turn aside from following the Lord, but to serve Him with all their might. But then he said this. He said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Thus, we can see that Samuel considered it a sin in his own life not to pray for people. That was his perspective at the time. When you look at the life of Job, it's very interesting. You know, Job's friends, who the Bible says were miserable comforters, so not much of a friend, really. They had come up with all kinds of reasons and scenarios why poor Job was suffering what he was suffering. And then they suggested that maybe it was his lack of prayer. Well, you're just not praying. That's why you're suffering. 
because they didn't know the whole reason. So they suggested that. When you look at David's life also when it comes to prayer, especially there in Psalm 55, you know, it's a prayer of distress when you read it. David is crying out to the Lord to basically destroy his enemies. You know, his enemies had come upon him and he was being oppressed by the wicked, is what he said. He was feeling the pressure of those that hated him. So he said that his heart was pained within him. That he even had terror of death. That he was afraid that it would fall upon him. He was full of fearfulness and trembling, he said. He was overwhelmed. So he cries out to the Lord there in Psalm 55, and he begins his supplication by saying this, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Hide not thyself. Of course, verse 16 and 17, David understood the outcome of his prayer, and he comes to the right conclusion. Anyway, there in 16 and 17, he says, As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me, even... Evening, morning, and noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. No doubt David understood what the final conclusion would be. But even in the beginning, when you read the beginning of his prayer, you know, he asked the Lord not to hide himself from him. Don't hide yourself from me, David. David, he understood, you know, his own humanness, you understand. You, that, that's, he understood how much of a wretched he really was. And so it caused him during that time to be a little hesitant, if you will, uh, in the beginning of his prayer. Yeah. But he did continue, as he says, evening, noon, and, and, and morning, uh, to pray unto the Lord. Now, this prayer that he prayed is about vengeance. And it's interesting because he wanted God to avenge him. And when you speak about vengeance, Jesus actually taught a very interesting parable and, uh, to his disciples. How that men ought to always pray and not to faint. And the, the Gospel of Luke, of course, tells a certain judge. He tells the story there of this unrighteous judge who did not fear God nor men. And then I want to read it to you. It's in chapter 18. And here's what the Lord spoke and it says and he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint saying that there was a in a city a judge which feared not God neither regarded man and there was a widow in that city and she came unto him saying avenge me of mine adversary and he would not for a while but afterward he said within himself though I fear not God and regard not man Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you, Jesus said, that, they, that he will avenge them speedily. Now, don't make any mistake when you read that particular parable. Jesus is not saying that God is like this unjust judge. Although I've heard sermons preached that way. You know, he's not saying that if you just pester God enough, you know, that God will finally get tired of listening to you and he'll do what you want him to do. Now, there's people, and maybe some of you sitting here, who think that way. 
But nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, what Jesus was saying was that in contrast to this unjust judge, God hears the prayers of the elect, and he answers them speedily. I like that. Now, within certain factions of the body of Christ, some denominations, and uh, within some non-denominational churches, there's this interesting theology, this very interesting doctrine. Maybe you've heard of it. It really has its roots in this Old Testament perspective when it comes to the issue of prayer. And it seems to be more prevalent uh, in Wesleyan-type churches, and I've seen it many times in the Church of Nazarene. But it's based on the assumption that we must feel, you see. We must feel as though we have touched the heart of God when we pray. So they, in some churches, will often hold prayer meetings. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. We've hold prayer meetings. Nothing wrong with the prayer meeting. But they'll hold prayer meetings for hours and hours. And, and I went to one one time, and uh, there was people laying at the altar, you know, just laying on their back. And I was a young man. I wasn't even in the ministry at the time. I was just a young Christian. And I remember asking, because I was curious, my buddy who had taken me, I said, why are they laying around on the floor? And he said, they're praying through. And I said, praying through to what? <laughs> he said, to God. And I said, doesn't God hear? And why are we whispering? But that was what they believed. They believed that they were going to stay there until they heard from God, until they felt that they had literally touched the throne of God, if you get my meaning. Now, there's an interesting story that I think is applicable. It's about the gold rush days. I love history. I was talking this morning about it, my love of history. And back in the gold rush days, there was a man by the name of R.U. Darby. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. But he had an uncle, and his uncle, and of course they, these guys lived in uh, Maine, or Maryland. They had heard about the gold rush that had just begun in Colorado. It was huge. And so Darby and his uncle got the idea that they would go there, they would you know, shut their business down because they had one. They were going to forsake that, take what little money they had, go to Colorado and strike it rich. So they left Maryland and they journeyed to Colorado. In order to stake their claim in the new found gold fields of Colorado. Sure enough. Sure enough. They hadn't even been there very long and had found this piece of land which they had purchased and preliminary diggings there, Mr. Darby discovered what he really believed was probably the richest vein of gold in the history of the United States. He was that convinced. It was that rich. It was that good. So he tells his uncle and his uncle confirms it with him. Yes, I believe that you're right. We've, we've, we've struck it. But they didn't have enough money to buy the equipment. So what did they do? They go all the way back to Maryland. And they gathered all their friends together and they convinced their friends to put up the money to not only buy the equipment, but to, of course, install the equipment so that they begin to mine and then they would pay back with interest everybody that they owed. So after returning to Colorado, Mr. Darby and his uncle began to work the mine. 
And sure enough, from the very first cartload that came up out of the mine, they had taken samples of it, of course, sent it to the smelters to determine the, the amount of gold that would come out per ton. And when the results came back, they had absolute proof that they indeed had probably struck the richest gold vein in the history of Colorado. Of course, everyone was mesmerized. Everybody had dollar signs in their eyes and, you know, uh, was, you know, having visions of mega wealth, like beyond anything you could possibly imagine. If they would just pay their debts off and they could continue to mine and the gold would just continue to flow and the money would just continue to build. This was what they believed. But just about the time when they had almost all their debt paid off, all their investors had gotten money back, just about the time that they had it complete and they were going to start working on their fortune, what happened? Well, nothing. The fact is, the very next cartload yielded nothing. And so they were unmoved. They thought, well, okay, it was a bad day. So they kept digging. And they kept digging and digging and digging to no avail. It just kept coming up dry. The well had run out, you see. They were discouraged, they were dismayed. The story goes that in order to get enough money, you know, after they had discussed it between themselves, you know, it was a family affair, it was an uncle and his nephew, they decided to finally give up on the mine. You know, it was a great idea, but let's go back to Maryland and we'll start our business all over out there, you see. And so they decided to forfeit it, and they decided to sell the equipment and the claim. Well, they found a junk dealer that was pretty local there. And he agreed to buy the claim and the equipment for pennies on the dollar. So they wound up selling their claim and all the equipment for $100. True story. After they departed for Maryland, the junk dealer, who, of course, had more money than they did, decided that before he would sell it out for junk, he called an engineer who specialized in mines. And he thought, what's it going to hurt? Let him look at it. So the specialist, after having looked very carefully at the mine, went out and surveyed it and did all of his topography and all the things that engineers of geography and that kind of stuff do, he discovered that the Darby's had actually followed the wrong strata. They hadn't kept on the trajectory that they should have. And according to his calculations, if they had simply kept digging, they would have hit the same fault and the same line and the same vein of gold. So on the advice of the specialist, the junk dealer went ahead and fired up the machines and he began to dig and within three feet of his dig, he hit the largest gold reserve in the history of the United States. True story. 
Now, I tell you this story because I've often heard this story given in relationship to prayer. That you see, if you don't keep praying, if you stop, you could be three feet away from gold. You could be three feet away from an answer to prayer that Almighty God would come down and do what it is that you're seeking Him to do. If you had only just prayed enough, you see. I personally believe that this concept is grounded really in an Old Testament theology, an Old Covenant perception, if you will. You see, when Jesus was crucified, and, and here is the crux of what we need to understand. When Jesus was crucified, we're told in the Scriptures that there was a huge earthquake that, that day, and that the sky actually turned black. The sun refused to shine. And the veil of the temple, which had separated the holy from the holy of holies, that barrier of partition that only the select few were allowed to penetrate, the Bible tells us it was rent in two from the top to the bottom. You see, prior to this momentous event in history, every year the high priest would go and offer a sacrifice, first for his own sin, and then he would tie a rope around his ankle. And his garments, of course, had bells upon the bottom of it and little pomegranates that had been fashioned into those things, gold pomegranates. But the bells were the most important part. Why? Because when he would go in, he tied the rope because he, when he, after he got done doing his own sacrifice, he would have to go in behind the veil in order to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the other priests who were not permitted, they weren't high priests, they, they would stand on the other side, you see, and they would listen for the bells. And as long as they heard the tinkling of the high priest in their tinkling, they knew all was well. But you see, the problem, the reason he took so much precaution was because within Jewish law, if you didn't go through the ceremonial cleansing properly, or if you failed to offer a sacrifice inconsistently, as Eli's sons did, who offered strange fire before the Lord, you remember the story, they wound up getting drunk, you remember? And they went in and began to offer strange fire before the Lord. Didn't fare too well for them because they wound up dead. Thus the high priest would take precaution and, and lest he should not do something exactly right and get back there and the next thing you know the tinkling of the bells would cease. And if the sound stopped, the other priest would simply start pulling the rope. <laughs> And they would drag his carcass out from behind the veil, you see. On the day that Jesus was crucified, even though the sky had grown dark and the earth trembled, we're told that the veil of the temple, as I said before, was torn completely in two from the top to the bottom. And that wall of partition that separated the holy from the holy of holies where God himself was at was done away with. 
by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. Thus the Apostle Paul wrote of this momentous occasion and, and the benefit that it brought to those of us who are part of the elect. We find it in the book of Hebrews there in chapter 4, in the beginning in verse 14, I'll read it for you. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might receive and obtain mercy and help in the time of need. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ changed everything. Everything. Before the cross, men could pray. Yes, they would pray. But in their minds, there would always be that question as to whether or not they were worthy, you see. So they would ask strange questions like, Lord, don't hide your face from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And they would say these things that to those of us in, under the new covenant find a bit strange. Under the old covenant, the relationship between God and man was predicated upon man's ability to keep it. But because he had no ability to keep it, his relationship to God was one of legality. One of performance, and thus, you know, one of uncertainty. Even in the realm of prayer, because man could never be certain where he stood with God at any given moment under the Old Covenant. Thus, as I said, they would pray, Lord, hearken unto my prayer. Take, you know, not thy Holy Spirit. They would have all these things where there seemed to be this apprehensiveness in their prayer. Their prayers could be in question, you see. But after the cross, after, after the veil was rent in half, Jesus, our high priest, established a new covenant which changed everything. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, he says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there should have sought no place for the second. You see, if God, if you're a child of God, if you're genuinely born again, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, you are a believer and you are a child of the Lord, then we are told in the scriptures that not only are you an heir with Christ, but you are a joint heir with Christ. The Old Covenant and all of its promises were predicated upon man's ability to keep it. But because man was incapable of keeping it, there was a need for a new covenant. Predicated upon not man's ability, but predicated upon God's ability to keep it. God would do it himself, you see. He has torn down the wall of partition that separated us from himself. And now you're told that you can come boldly 
unto the throne of grace that you might receive help in time of need. Paul says in our text, continue in prayer. Continue in it and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So now we are to continue in prayer under this new covenant because we now have free access to the throne of grace. We no longer have to be concerned with whether we are worthy because He is worthy. We no longer have to be concerned with how we speak even, whether our words or our prayers are correctly spoken. Why? Because the Holy Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So even the Lord does that for me. I love the fact that I have free access continually to the throne of God because of all that Jesus Christ has done on my behalf and on your behalf. I no longer have to pray the way David prayed. He said, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. I no longer have to worry because God is not hiding. God is, He will not keep any good thing from me or from you. I can boldly come to the throne of grace. I don't have to lay at the altar until I feel that I have prayed through because Jesus has already made the way through, you see. He has made the way through. And we penetrate into the throne of God by Him because of His worthiness. Paul said, pray continually. I'm convinced that there is power, my friends, in prayer. Enormous power in prayer. James tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In our same chapter today, in chapter 4, verse 12, we're told that a papyrus, here in verse 12 of our chapter, he labored, it says, he labored fervently in prayer for the people of Colossae that they might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And when you think of laboring, I, the thing that came to my mind was the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he, if you remember, he had asked his own disciples to pray with him and to watch. Jesus then went off to pray by himself. His, he labored in prayer. His fervent pleading to the Father literally produced sweat that the Bible says was as it were great drops of blood. That's how he labored in prayer. And yet, even in his prayer, he said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Fervent prayer is a way for me to align my will with God's. I want to be in alignment with God's will. Why? Because I can't see two seconds past my nose. But God does. The Lord knows all. I want my will to be in perfect alignment with His. Sometimes my willingness is there. You remember when Jesus came back from praying, his disciples had fallen asleep. You remember that? And he said, could you not pray and watch for one hour? The spirit is willing, he said, but the flesh is weak. Sometimes I admit myself and my spirit is willing, 
but my physical ability is not there. After Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, even my prayer time, along with all aspects of the covenant that came with it, changed. Jesus changes everything, my friends. I went from a life of the flesh to a life of the Spirit. And that affects every aspect of my life, including my prayer life. Pray continually, Paul said, because there's power in prayer. Be in continual communication with God like a papyrus. He says, labor in prayer. Pray for others that they might stand perfectly in all the will of God. And watch, he said. What's he mean by that? Be aware of what's going on. Be aware of what's going on in the world. Be aware of what's going on around you personally. Keep those things in prayer. When we realize all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us as believers, all that He has done for you and for me, how He has not only bought and paid for my salvation, cleansed me from all my sin, how He has imputed His righteousness to me, justified me, sanctified me, counts me holy in all aspects of my life. It causes me to be thankful. When I go to prayer and I'm praying and I'm intercessing with, with the Father and I'm communicating, because that's really, gang, what prayer is. Never forget that. Prayer, in its bare meaning, itself means worship. And it, this morning when we were singing, we were praying. When we were praying, we're actually worshiping now through the Word because we are communicating with God. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. So it's a beautiful relationship that we have, not like the Old Covenant. I was having a discussion with another theologian. And I said, isn't it amazing that, you know, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But the question is, is did Abraham know that? And I don't think that he did. I think he knew God, but he didn't know how God had blessed him, really. I mean, he accounted his blessing in material things because that's all he could see. So a lot of times, you know, we address God in ways that we probably shouldn't address him. Why? Because we don't understand all that we have in Christ. But if you do understand all that you have in Christ, then you can come boldly unto the throne of grace. It's not your worthiness that gives you access. It's Jesus' worthiness that gives you access. It's all that He has done, not what you do. Paul said, pray continually, watch in the same, and be thankful. I pray that you are this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we do thank you for all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Lord, we thank you that you said it is paid for. That we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look ahead at this world and your soon return, we do understand that things seem to be out of control. But Lord, Father, we thank you for the most powerful thing that we have, and that is access to you. Lord, 
You said that it is by your Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. We have a personal relationship with you if we're in Christ. And while every head is bowed and praying, and even for those of you who are listening by radio, I want to ask you, do you have that relationship? Oh, you might say you pray, and I pray that you do, but do you have that relationship? Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you really accepted the free gift of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ? If if your answer is no, my friend, I encourage you, I implore you on behalf of Christ and in his stead, be reconciled to God. While every head's bowed, if there's anybody here this morning that needs prayer, we just want to pray for you before we leave this morning. I know there's a lot of things going on. If you want to raise your hand, I see that hand. Anybody else? I see those hands. I see them. We're just going to go to prayer here. Anybody else need prayer this morning? Like I said, as we've been studying, I see that hand. We're, we're going to be praying. The most powerful thing that we have is the free access to God's grace and His throne of grace. Anyone else before we go to prayer? Well, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we do lift up those, Lord Father, who raised their hand. And Lord, you know the things that they are praying for. And we're so thankful, Lord Father, that we can Take them as Jesus' friends lifted, you know, they lifted their friends up to Jesus, Lord Father. We lift them up to you. And Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus we have free access, Lord Father. Touch each heart. Answer the prayers, Lord Father. We know you will, Lord Father, because we ask these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.